This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the world of NIM cells. What are they and where do they fit in online? Plus, the genetic similarities between unrelated doppelgangers and gummy bears made out of wind turbines. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Have you heard of NIM cells? N-I-M-C-E-L-S. Thankfully, it's not an offshoot of incels, like I assumed it was when I first heard of it. Nimcel is short for Niche Internet Micro-Celebrity. It's someone with a following online within a hyper-specific vertical, who's not big enough to actually make money off of their online popularity, and doesn't make that a goal of theirs anyways. It's a relatively self-deprecating moniker for a label that comes with the prerequisite that you can't care too much. Despite being a decidedly Gen Z phenomenon, it's actually pretty Gen X, you know, even while doing the thing, you have to show that you don't care about the thing. Taylor Lawrence, perpetual translator of online youth culture to fellow millennials, recently crowned the first generation to age out of being cool on the internet, profiled a few nimcels in the Washington Post today. Here's how Lawrence defines the term, quote, Niche internet micro-celebrities are people online who are known to a small but often dedicated group, and they represent a growing variant of the attention economy. Online fame is a consequence for a niche internet micro-celebrity, never the goal. They rarely make money from their social accounts, choosing instead to post for the fun of it. The term is often used in a tongue-in-cheek way. TikTok and YouTube stars chasing fame in Hollywood or joining content houses are not niche internet micro-celebrities. But a meme account admin, hyper-local Twitter personality, founder of a popular Discord server, or random guy who's gone viral for being repeatedly featured on a popular Instagram account would be. End quote. Other possible trademarks of a niche internet micro-celebrity, as proposed by self-described niche internet micro-celebrities Lauren's interviewed, include having a regular job that has nothing to do with your online fame, not owning a ring light or even wiping the grease off your phone's camera lens before filming, not doing brand deals or probably even being offered to do them, making little to no money off the platforms themselves, probably having some kind of lore or strong posting style so followers feel part of in-group, but not actively caring about curation or branding. Being platform agnostic, you know, these aren't solely TikTokers, they can pop up anywhere. And most importantly, not trying too hard or becoming too popular. Enna Da, a nimcel from Brooklyn who posts meme edits on Instagram, told Lawrence, quote, I think this term emerged to distinguish people doing a similar thing to influencers, but for completely different motivations. Being a niche internet micro-celebrity feels less capitalist, less I'm a brand, end quote. 
Many of the nimcels in the article describe themselves as doing what they do purely for the entertainment value, providing entertainment to people, but not expecting fame and fortune in return. And even though this particular terminology feels to me like it has the potential to be so fleeting as to be effectively dead on arrival, it does fill a much-needed gap in the online attention economy lexicon. Lawrence provided a brief overview of the various terms society has tried to apply to people who become well-known online. Quoting again, Throughout the aughts, individuals with fandoms on platforms like MySpace or Tumblr were called everything from fameballs to celebrities to internet stars. Next New Networks, an early YouTube multi-channel network, first pioneered the term creator as shorthand for the burgeoning class of people finding fame and making a living off YouTube, which the company had previously called partners. These people were more than on-screen talent, Tim Shea, co-founder of Next New Networks, told The Atlantic. They could write, edit, produce, do community management, and were entrepreneurs. Because the term creator was so synonymous with YouTube, for years people still didn't know what to call those who were gaining attention on other apps. Platform-specific names like Vinestar, Tumblr Famous, or Bloglebrity took hold temporarily, but when marketing dollars began to flood the industry in the mid-2000s, marketing execs ushered in a new term from their own world influencer. The term influencer was platform agnostic and described the growing and amorphous power that came with online fame. In 2020, when Silicon Valley finally began to take the online creator industry seriously, things flipped again, and the term influencer was replaced with its progenitor, creator. End quote. And I'll add that YouTuber was and still is occasionally deployed in the same way creator is, but around 2014-ish, being referred to as a YouTuber immediately made people think you were some kind of shock jock prankster. Meanwhile, influencer often evokes someone whose content revolves almost exclusively around product reviews and brand deals. Many of us have begrudgingly settled on creator thanks to the bad taste every other alternative leaves in our mouths. But how to describe the people who are a part of that world but not making enough to quit their day jobs, or even wanting to? Journalist Lori Penny has described these people as nano-celebrities, explaining them as people who get recognized on the bus but still have to take the bus. And Liz Fong-Jones pointed out on Twitter that tech researcher Dana Boyd also predicted as early as 2008 that, in the future, everyone would be famous to 100 people. In the early 2010s, I often heard people say that if you had at least a thousand followers on one platform, that was the first tipping point into the tiny public figure world. Meanwhile, I've also heard it said that these days it's less that people have their 15 minutes of fame and more that everyone is famous to 15 people. That seems to hit on the phenomenon of niche internet micro-celebrities. Software engineer and meme group moderator turned niche internet micro-celebrity Alyssa McDevitt told Lawrence, quote, You're kind of in between a private citizen and a full-blown influencer. You get to appreciate both those things. You're well-liked, and certain people know you, and people are nice to you, but you aren't invited to the more glitzy and glamorous things like the Met Ball, end quote. That description applies to more and more people these days, and in a way, I actually really like that there's a bit of a spotlight being put on it right now, because, you know, I think when we see someone has a following online, we always assume they wanted that, or that they're using it to try to get even more of a following, to dovetail that following into some kind of income stream or career move if it hasn't already. But a lot of times, 
it just kind of happens to people accidentally. And maybe they do try to take advantage of it, but oftentimes they just roll with it, enjoying the fun and relative safety that a small, insular community can provide without having to worry about the bigger risks that come with a bigger platform. Stalking, harassment, having your words or intentions taken out of context and blowing up into controversy. I mean, I think a lot of these nimcells deal with the harassment, at the very least. It takes such a small amount of attention online to start getting harassed. But most of the nimcells Lawrence spoke to are happy, being, quote, below the surface of mainstream fame, end quote, and getting to just have fun for now. Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Phone plan streams and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. Have you ever been told you have a doppelganger? Someone unrelated to you who looks remarkably similar? In the age of smartphones, such spottings seem to be a bit more frequent. You know, it's easy to text someone a photo of a little-known actor or musician, or even a stealthily snapped pic of a stranger to report to a friend that you spotted their secret doppelganger. But one researcher wanted to dig deeper. Dr. Manuel Esteller from the Joseph Carreras Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona has previously studied physical differences between identical twins, differences largely the result of epigenetics, that is, changes in the expressions of our genes caused by environmental or behavioral factors, not by our DNA, of which identical twins share exactly. But Dr. Esteller started wondering about how it works in the opposite direction. Rather than two related people who are supposed to be identical but have some physical appearance differences, what about people who aren't related but share an eerily strong physical resemblance? Fortunately, Canadian artist Francois Brunel already had a sample population ready for Esteller's use. Brunel began photographing pairs of doppelgangers in 1999 under a project called I'm Not a Lookalike. The project features black and white photographs of pairs of unrelated people from all around the world who could easily pass for twins, but in some cases aren't even from the same continent and don't share any similar ancestry. Esteller's team got in touch with Brunel and managed to recruit 32 pairs of lookalikes. They then used facial recognition software to assess the similarities between each pair. Half of them scored similar scores to those by identical twins. The team then analyzed the DNA from all of the participants using saliva samples they had provided, and they ended up finding out that those 16 pairs that scored similarly to identical twins on the facial recognition software, the ones dubbed true lookalikes, shared far more of their genes than the ones who were physically more dissimilar. So people really do look more similar because they have more genes in common with one another. Quoting Science Alert, Together, these super doppelgangers share 19,277 common genetic variations in 3,730 genes, many of which are to do with body and facial traits. Their personal questionnaires suggest they share even more than that. Some lifestyle features, like smoking habits, weight, and level of education, were also associated with many lookalike pairs. End quote. Now that said, the lookalikes did differ when it came to epigenetics. 
From the New York Times, quote, DNA alone doesn't tell the whole story of our makeup. Our lived experiences and those of our ancestors influence which of our genes are switched on or off, what scientists call our epigenomes. And our microbiome, our microscopic co-pilot made up of bacteria, fungi, and viruses, is further influenced by our environment. Dr. Esteller found that while the doppelgangers' genomes were similar, their epigenomes and microbiomes were different. Genetics put them together, and epigenetics and microbiome pulls them apart, he said. This discrepancy tells us that the pair's similar appearances have more to do with their DNA than with the environments they grew up in. That surprised Dr. Esteller, who had expected to see a bigger environmental influence. Because the doppelganger's appearances are more attributable to shared genes than shared life experiences, that means that, to some extent, their similarities are just the luck of the draw, spurred on by population growth. There are, after all, only so many ways to build a face. End quote. Esteller hopes that being able to confirm these genetic similarities could be helpful in the prevention and treatment of disease. If links are found between shared disease and shared predilection for certain diseases, or if doctors are able to know how a person should look based on their genes and they don't look that way, it could be a clue of an underlying, as yet undiagnosed, condition. Esteller has also raised the idea that these findings could one day be applied to forensics, but others have pushed back, saying that facial algorithms have already shown to have at least a racial bias, so we'd need to proceed carefully to ensure all ethical concerns had been considered. Now, reversing gears again back to the identical twin studies, this makes me think a little bit about cases of identical twins or triplets who were separated at birth and then later found to have had a ton of life experiences in common, like picking up the same hobbies, following similar career paths, marrying people with the same name. Now, it's wild that these unrelated people who happened to share so many genes in common despite not having any ancestral relations still ended up sharing similar habits, education, etc. So does our DNA really determine so many factors like that? Or is it perhaps that people who look a certain way get treated a certain way and have certain expectations put on them in very subtle, unnoticeable ways that add up over time? As with all these studies, the push and pull of nature and nurture just gets more intriguing, spawning five more questions for every answer. Gummy worms, bears, and other gummy candies typically aren't vegan because they're made from gelatin, which is usually derived from collagen taken from animal parts. But good news, vegans. In the future, you might be able to eat gummy bears made out of wind turbines. For real. This is thanks to a new study from researchers at Michigan State University who presented their findings today at the fall meeting of the American Chemical Society. Now, their study wasn't focused on finding a way to make vegan gummies, unfortunately, but rather on finding a way to more sustainably recycle wind turbine blades. Quoting Gizmodo, the same arguments for upgrading your smartphone every year, such as improving its performance or replacing a device with a lot of wear and tear, apply to wind turbines too. Swapping in larger and lighter blades can improve the efficiency and power output of a wind turbine, but disposing of a mobile device that slips into your pocket is a lot easier than disposing of a fiberglass blade measuring over 250 feet in length, or three of them to be exact. 
Current wind turbine blades can be recycled into other products, such as building materials, but the practice isn't widespread yet, and these gigantic components instead often just end up in landfills. End quote. But how did this team get from recycling wind turbine blades to turning them into gummy bears? I mean, that wouldn't be most people's first idea for repurposing. Well, they actually developed a new turbine material and then experimented with various ways that that material could be adapted for both reuse and repurposing. Quoting the American Chemical Society, The team made a new turbine material by combining glass fibers with a plant-derived polymer and a synthetic one. Panels made from this thermoplastic resin were strong and durable enough to be used in turbines or automobiles. The researchers dissolved the panels in fresh monomer and physically removed the glass fibers, allowing them to be recast into material into new products of the same type. Importantly, the recast panels had the same physical properties as their predecessors. In addition to new wind turbine blades, the novel resin could be used for a variety of other applications. By mixing the resin with different minerals, the team produced cultured stone that could be transformed into household objects, such as countertops and sinks. The researchers could also crush the recovered material and mix it with other plastic resins for injection molding, which is used to make items like laptop covers and power tools. End quote. And then, if they digested the thermoplastic resin in an alkaline solution, they released a common acrylic material used in items like windows and taillights. And from there, if they raised the temperature, it was converted into a superabsorbent polymer that's typically used in diapers. And a byproduct of those processes is potassium lactate, which can be purified to the point of being food-grade safe. So the team took that and used it to make gummy bears. Presenting author John Dorgan said, quote, We recovered food-grade potassium lactate and used it to make gummy bear candies, which I ate. End quote. Gotta love an experiment you can eat. Now, Dorgan seems to have had no ill effects from eating these wind turbine-derived gummy bears. He told ACS, quote, A carbon atom derived from a plant, like corn or grass, is no different from a carbon atom that came from a fossil fuel. It's all part of the global carbon cycle, and we've shown that we can go from biomass in the field to durable plastic materials and back to foodstuffs. End quote. So, will wind turbine gummies be hitting the market soon? Not for a while, if ever. The whole process relies on wind turbines switching to the new material the team developed, not applying all of this to existing turbines, so they'll need to be made, installed, and tested in the field. If that all holds up, it would hopefully create a larger demand for the bioplastic developed by the team to help them then financially scale up. The gummies, though, might have just been a proof of concept. But hey, never say never. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.